the, the subject of walking as children of light is uh, a theme that we recognize instantly from the prophecy of Isaiah, right back in Isaiah chapter 2. The implications of the vision of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ reigning from Jerusalem, all nations coming up to learn the law of the Lord and worship at Jerusalem, the reign of righteousness which produces peace in the earth, that glorious vision leads to the appeal in chapter 2, verse 5, which says, O house of Jacob, come ye, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. So there's something fundamental about the vision that sheds light along our path in life, along which we should walk. And that's what we want to look at today. Want to start in Ephesians chapter 5, please, because... Uh, and we'll get come back after uh, a journey through the scriptures to Ephesians. But it's not in chapter 5, because there the apostle very clearly expands this principle about walking in light. And he tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 8, You were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And part of the argument he presents to us in verse 14 is a quotation from Isaiah 60, verse 1. It's not exactly the same as Isaiah 60, verse 1, certainly not in the English. So the margin says, cited generally from Isaiah 60, verse 1. So it's a quotation, some uh, change, which draws out some of the deeper points. So verse 14 says, wherefore he saith, so it's a quotation, wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. In other words, the, the root of walking in light is something that goes back to Isaiah chapter 60. So that's what we'd like to look at, and particularly Isaiah chapter 59 and 60. Uh, we need to set it in context. That's what I've been trying to do. Let's cut to the chase. We like to look at Isaiah chapter 56 to 66 as, a, as an overview, first of all, because I think this is a section of scripture that we can, we can understand. Um, and it starts in 56. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 56, you'll see there that it's about worship on the holy mountain. The first section of 56 is, is asking uh, who is going to be accepted? Uh, those who keep the Sabbath, those who keep the principles of the Sabbath, and even the stranger and the eunuch will be able to be accepted in God's holy house. And the house talked about in verse 7 is the house of prayer for all nations. This is the, the temple of the age to come. And you'll see there that uh, it's on the holy mountain, verse 7. Even then will I bring to my holy mountain. So the theme that Isaiah started with in uh, chapters 1 and 2 about Jerusalem in the kingdom age is the theme that Isaiah finishes with from 56 onwards. And the idea of the holy mountain uh, is something that you get in, in 56 and 57. And then... 
you get it in 6566. So it forms a frame. Who is going to be accepted to worship on the holy mountain? And part of the issue in 56 to 58 is that the worship that has been described is unacceptable. So if you look at verse uh, 9 of 56 onwards, you can see it's about the watchmen, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, the shepherds of Israel, verse 11. They are self-indulgent. Uh, They're not doing the job responsibly. They are feeding themselves. They are lazy. And that means that the people have got no leadership and they are themselves going quite astray. So chapter 57 describes one class of people who are called, terrible description, the sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. So these people, they have adopted idolatrous practices and idolatrous beliefs. They are this, a seed of falsehood. This is complete travesty of the religion of God. And they're described in some detail. And the judgment that comes upon the harlot is also described. Prophetically, I'm sure this is about the, uh, the false Christianity of, of the church. Uh, and it's unacceptable worship. But in contrast, look at the end of verse 13 of 50, 56. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So there's the contrast. That's the first contrast with the, the, the false uh, worship of the seed of the sorcerer. But chapter 58 describes another class of person and it's another sort of religion. This is one that looks good from the outside. And yet it's a description of a people who are completely hypocritical in their worship. So look at 58 verse two, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. As if, so they are religious people. They are, they are uh, to all intents and purposes, following the truth in their worship, but God does not accept them. Why does he not accept them? Because they are not following it from the heart, following the true principles of the truth from the heart. They are just conforming to an outward celebration of those things. And their way of life is not characterized by the, the kindness and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Two major forms of, of worship which are unacceptable. And you can imagine this or say, well, you know, what's left? What, what have we got left? Uh, we, if we don't go down the idolatry path, we don't. You are now criticizing us. We're trying to keep the Day of Atonement. And you, you're saying it's not acceptable. And the answer comes in chapter 59. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. What's the problem? Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. So the, the truth is that the iniquity was not acknowledged in either of those forms of religion. The, the, the basic problem of human nature was not being acknowledged. And chapter 59 describes that, that basic uh, human nature in, to such a degree 
That is the Apostle Paul's source for in Romans chapter 3 for describing is one of the passages the Apostle Paul quotes to, to prove that we are all under sin, Isaiah 59. Uh, we'll come back to that, but at the end of chapter 59, you can see that the answer to this problem of sin, the answer is provided by God. So verse 16 of Isaiah 59 says, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation. So the Lord God has provided the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to reverse unacceptable worship. He's going to remove it, and he is going to bring true worship. So in chapter 59, verse 20, it says, The Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob. For this as for me, this is my covenant with them, said Yahweh, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart of, out of thy mouth, but out of the mouth of thy seed, out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, said Yahweh, from henceforth forever. So there's going to be a remedy. And chapter 60 to 62 provides the wonderful description of that new Jerusalem, which has been completely transformed. It is now the holy city once again. It is now the place uh, where uh, the outcasts of Israel have been gathered and Gentiles come paying homage to the Lord. And it's a, a city which is now married to the Lord. The new covenant has been established and celebrated. It's a beautiful picture, 60, 61, 62. But 63 picks up the mighty Redeemer coming to Zion again, because we left the mighty Redeemer in 59 verse 20. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. When we jump to 63, here he comes. And those in, in Jerusalem, as it were, the watchmen are looking over the walls and they say, who is this that comes from Eden with his garments, uh, with dyed garments from Bosra? And the answer is, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? I have trodden the winepress alone. And so the Lord Jesus Christ comes with the saints to deliver Jerusalem from the oppressor. And the Redeemer comes to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom. The chapter 60 to 62 are so beautifully presented for us. Well, in 60. Uh, 3 verse 7 onwards, instead of sin being brought to mind, remember chapter 59 describes sin in such a gruesome way, it becomes uh, a representative of, of all sin. But look how that's contrasted in 63 verse 7. What the, what the prophet refers to now is the opposite. I will mention the loving kindnesses of Yahweh. And the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh hath bestowed upon us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them, according to its mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And so instead of sin being brought to remembrance now, the loving kindness of the Lord is brought to remembrance. And the, the, the prophecy goes on to appealing to that loving kindness, that God would come and deliver his people from being downcast, that God would rend the heavens, that he would come down. 
course, the Lord Jesus Christ in his first uh, ministry uh, began that process, did he not? But then 65 to 66 once more describes worship on the holy mountain and shows that the unacceptable worship is replaced by true worship of those who tremble at God's word and then the earth is full of God's righteousness and all nations come up to worship in the house of prayer for all nations. There's a very nice uh, symmetrical pattern there which helps us understand the sequence, the flow of thought. But I want to come back to 59 and look at a little bit more detail there, you see, because uh, what you've got there in chapter 59, and notice the, uh, the terms here, verse 2 of 59, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, your sins. So the, the, the prophet is speaking about these people over there, right? Your hands. He's, he's, he's pointing to them and describing uh, their waywardness. Verse 8, the way of peace. They know not. There is no judgment in their goings. But look in verse 9. There's a sudden change in verse 9. There's a change in the, uh, in the voice, right? Instead of the prophet pointing out their um, wickedness, it says in verse 9, therefore is judgment far from us. Neither does justice overtake us. We wait for light. So it is the voice of, of someone or a group of people who now recognize their situation. It's not just uh, you know, stubborn people who are going on in their own sweet way. Now there's a voice of repentance. There's a voice of acknowledgement at least. And look how they describe their situation. Verse 9. But we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. This class of people who recognize their situation realize that they, they have no idea how to get out of it. There are blind people groping for a way out. They cannot see. They know that they're in darkness, but they, they're looking for a way to find the light. And verse 11 says, we roar like bears and mourn like doves. It's an understandable reaction. You know, the frustration the frustration of knowing that we're in a terrible situation, knowing that there surely should be a better way, there, there must be a, a way out of it. And there are two reactions. One is to roar like bears, you know, to rage in anger. We sometimes may not, we may not express it in so many words, but we might deep down feel real tension about, about things, you know. We can feel a real, real... Uh, Pressure, pressure that we, we want to scream. How can we get out of this situation we, we're in? On the other hand, we may mourn sore like doves. We may get really sad, really beaten down, really depressed. Uh, we've got no energy. There's nothing we can do. It's hopeless. That's just the way it is. 
And, and the reason for people feeling like that is verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. We know them. And that leads into this wonderful provision. God sees this, verse 16. He sees there is no man. He sees there is no way that humankind can find a way out. The law has confirmed us in sin. It's made sin exceeding sinful. We, we know we are sinners. We're proven to be sinners. The, the Jew, Gentile, we are all under sin. What can we do there? God's arm brought salvation and his righteousness, it sustained him. And so verse 17, he says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And so the Lord provides a mighty warrior. What he puts on are the garments of a military person. He puts on a breastplate. He puts on a helmet. This one is going to do battle. When we come to 63, we know that he's done battle uh, with the forces of uh, the nations that have come against Jerusalem and spoiled the land and removed the inhabitants. And he's trampled them in his anger and trampled them in his fury. But before the Lord comes to do that, the Lord had another battle that he had to win, the battle over sin and death. And that battle was won through putting salvation on as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. The breastplate protects the heart. The helmet pr protects the head. The Lord Jesus Christ was clothed in righteousness and clothed in uh, an understanding of God's purpose, which enabled him through, through faith and through the closeness of fellowship with his father to defeat every temptation, to cancel every thrust that the nature would throw at him. And so that was the beginning of a battle, which will see that last enemy, which is death, being destroyed. And that's the Lord who is going to come to Zion as the Redeemer. That's the one who is going to minister uh, and who ministers the loving kindness of God uh, to those who acknowledge sin and who seek for the answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that answer, as we saw in John chapter 8, is a light that shines in darkness. So in contrast to the darkness of chapter 59, Chapter 60 opens with a wonderful presentation of the bursting of light. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. So you link that to verse 9 of 59. We walk in darkness, but now the light has come. Arise, shine. There's a wake-up call 
and the shining is of those who are awakened. You know, it's interesting because Jesenius renders that shine there as become light. You know, arise, become light. The, the Lord Jesus Christ has come. The light has come. So become light. Become people of the day. Be become glorious because the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But Yahweh shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And it's referring, I think, to Jerusalem. Look at verse four. Lift up thine eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. So Jerusalem is being told to arise out of the dust, to arise out of the darkness, uh, to start to shine uh, as a light in the world. The glory of God dwells in Jerusalem and all the world coming to see the light. So go to verse 19 of uh, the same chapter. The sun shall no more be thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give thee light unto thee, but Yahweh shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy, thy God thy glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself. For Yahweh shall be thy everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. So Jerusalem arises, as it were, from the, the, from the grave, because she has been in the dust of the earth. She has been trodden down. Uh, her light has long since gone out. The times of the Gentiles have trampled all over her. But now she arises, the glory of Yahweh through the Lord Jesus Christ and the immortalite saints make Jerusalem the, the capital, the head of the nations. Righteousness goes out. The light is righteousness. Righteousness goes out and shines into the darkest corners of the earth. And people then understand and come to Jerusalem to worship. That's what the, the picture is of. And it's, it's a glorious picture of, uh, of that. So what about walking in light then? Well, that's what we want to look at, how the New Testament explains to us uh, how to understand these passages as applied during the times of the Gentiles to those who would be the, uh, the rulers of the age to come, kings and priests in that new Jerusalem. In other words, brothers and sisters, you, are, you and I, by God's grace, by God's loving kindness. And the first passage we want to go to is our reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And you can see, I hope, without having to explain it too much, how 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 takes hold of this wonderful section of Isaiah's prophecy. So... Isaiah 59.9, we hope for light and behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. And then it goes on to find the Lord Jesus Christ, who's put on the, uh, 
the breastplate and the helmet. And then he comes as the Redeemer to Zion and Jerusalem arises and shines because the light has come. Well, have a look at the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You don't want to look at it in your own Bibles as well. Just put that up there for um, memory aid. But look, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians is speaking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was something that the Thessalonians treasured. They thought the Lord was coming very quickly. And uh, sometimes they were overly eager, giving up their jobs and just, you know, going from house to house and uh, not actually doing what they should do, which was to wait patiently for him. But the coming of the Lord was very much in the minds of the Thessalonians. This was their great desire. And they're not to be criticized for that, are they? But they were to take comfort in the knowledge that when the Lord came, the dead would be raised and those alive would be caught together with them. And of course, there'd be a judgment, but it's coming together and coming to Jerusalem, ultimately, which is the hope. First one of chapter five, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Verse four, but ye, brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. Now, are we right to think that the apostle is going, taking us back to Isaiah 59, 60? Well, yes, because look what happens when you get down to verse 8. Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. Put on the very same uh, garments of, of a warrior, of a soldier that the Lord Jesus Christ put on. He put on breast, the breastplate of righteousness. Well, how does that, where do we get righteousness from? Faith is counted for righteousness. And what is righteousness? But it is the practice of love, isn't it? Isn't that what, what, what we do? Isn't that what our faith tells us to do? That we are counted righteous and that we manifest that love to one another that has been shown to us. And the helmet of sun, what protected the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ from, uh, from harm? What kept his thoughts pure? What kept his hope? Uh, what, what, it was his, his absolute belief uh, and commitment to the things of his God. And our hope, and sisters, is presented to us in this way. The hope of the kingdom is not just some thing. We say, yeah, yeah, I believe that the kingdom's going to come. Yeah, one day Jesus will come. Hope is a motivating power. Hope is something which is sacrificed when our minds drift on to wrong things. We have to keep the hope of the coming of the Lord in our minds. So is any doubt, is any doubt to you that, that First Thessalonians 5 has taken us back to this section of Isaiah? And so what it's stressing, more than Isaiah stressed, Isaiah stressed walking in darkness. But he says we are not of the night. Our life is not nightlife. You know, one of the great things that uh, has been sacrificed in the lockdown 
if you listen to the news media, is nightlife, right? The nighttime economy, as it's called. But that's not our life, is it? We're not of the nighttime economy. That's not our aspiration. That's not our hope. We have to stay awake. We are children of the day, even though it's dark outside. We're children of the day. We keep our lights burning bright. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we are sober. Our minds aren't befuddled by the thinking of the world. Well, of course, that's the challenge, are they? You know, uh, sometimes. But th that's what it means to be walking in light. So the first thing we can say from this passage is that walking in light is walking in the hope of the coming of the Lord as a real event that changes our perspective in life. It changes what we're seeking. It changes the way we, we live. So I was told there's no point just being religious in the way the world sees it, you know, going to meeting. We can't go to meeting anymore, can we? You know, uh, so, so that's taken that little proper way. Yeah, how can I show people I, I'm religious if I can't go there? Okay, well, I switch on to all the Zoom meetings. That'll show them I'm religious. Well, that's not the measure of it. The measure of our true religion is whether we are walking with a breastplate of faith and love and a hope of salvation. And what that means to the Thessalonians, just very quickly, chapter four, uh, he, he warns them, doesn't he? Uh, that they should live holy lives. That's what he's talking about. God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So that's the first thing. And then he goes on in chapter five to, to list the things that uh, we, we are to do and the things we are not to do. It's the Christ-like life, which is walking in light. That's one passage, and I think it's a good passage to think about. Another one is Romans chapter 13, and this one might uh, slip uh, attention, but once we, uh, once we sort of tune in to Isaiah, we can, and, and we've looked at Thessalonians, we can understand that, you know, darkness is time for sleeping, darkness is a time for getting drunk, we're not of the night, uh, we have to be awake as good soldiers, because we are soldiers, we've got breastplates on, and we've got helmets on. Yeah, we're soldiers. We're on duty. We're on the wall. We're watchmen. We're warning the inhabitants. We're looking out for danger. Uh, we're protecting the vulnerable in the ecclesia, uh, the youngsters, the interested friends. That's what we're about. We're not there to satisfy ourselves. We're not there to, uh, to feel good about ourselves. We're there to help other people, uh, to come to, to the light. That's what we're about. So he says in chapter... 13 and verse 11, that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on, look at this, the armour, the armour of light. But what's the armour of light? It's, it's a breastplate. And it's a helmet. It's the armor of light. And you might think, you know, as the sun shines on the battlefield, that these are the things that glint and flash. 
the armor of light <coughs> flashing on the, uh, the breastplate, flashing on the helmet, so that in our lives we might actually reflect some of the, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the way we are uh, and, and what we say to people uh, and, and how we walk ourselves. What we have to do then is cast off the works of darkness. That's walking in light. Well, just take a note of chapter 13. What's the context there? So it's a very interesting context because it is that every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Right? So it goes on to talk about that the, the, the authorities under which the ecclesia lives is there by the providential hand of God. And therefore, we are to obey them, of course. Unless they ask us to disobey the commandments of Christ, we have to say that. The Apostle Paul um, uh, and Peter, you know, we, we must obey God rather than men. But when they're not asking us to uh, break the commandments of God, then we obey them. I mean, we obey lockdown, don't we? Because that's the law of the country. We might not agree with it. I might disagree. I might say there's not much evidence. In fact, the evidence is contrary to what the government's policy is. And we have a long debate about that. But nevertheless, the law of the land is to honour the lockdown. We honour the lockdown. We do not rise up against the authorities. We do not go placarding down the street. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. Even though it was a, a world of great injustice, you know, Pharisees stole widows' houses. The Romans exploited and, and oppressed. There was a time of outrage, but the Lord never did it, and he doesn't want his disciples to do it either. He says to them, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Live a quiet and peaceable life, he says, and manifest God's love one to another. That's the quiet, godly life, which is walking in light, in the knowledge of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, look at this verse 11, it's high time to awake out of sleep. Arise, shine for your light. We don't know when the Lord's going to come. It seems to be taking an awful long time. And we want to hurry it along. We wanted Trump to get in in America so he could make another peace deal in the Middle East. And, and that, would, that would signal that the final stage. But it doesn't look like he's going to get in. We don't know what's going to happen. In the newspaper today, it says Putin looks like he might be giving up because he's got an illness. But then the Kremlin denies it. We don't know how the angels are working. And sometimes we can feel... A little bit despondent about this. But Romans 13 verse 11 is a real wake-up call. Now it is high time to awake out of sleep. You know, brother Mike Thomas uh, fell asleep in Jesus a few weeks ago. And he didn't know two months ago that he was ill even. You know, none of us knows uh, how much time we've got left. And that is such a salutary thought, isn't it? The Apostle Paul didn't know how long he'd have. 
now it is high time to wake out to sleep. So if any of us, and that probably all of us at some point, when we reflect on our, our activities, that we are a bit sleepy in some aspects of our walk. A bit lazy, perhaps, a bit self-centered, perhaps, a bit contented too much, uh, leaving it to, for others to do things that uh, we don't really want to do ourselves. Now is the time for us to wake up, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Let's go back to Ephesians. You see, it wasn't just Ephesians. It was Thessalonians and Romans, which the inspired apostle took uh, us to those wonderful chapters in Isaiah. But what Ephesians chapter 5 is telling us is that we have to walk in light. And the walking in light is... Uh, applies the same principles, you know, just look at the end of chapter four, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is, this is the stuff of darkness. This is the stuff of the, of, uh, the internet, the, the Facebook trolls. This is, this is the language of bitter uh, unpleasantness. Some of us have experienced it ourselves just by speaking the truth of the scriptures to find that there's a torrent of abuse uh, on social media. Uh, this isn't of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this has nothing to do with this is darkness. What is the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 32, be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Walking in light, as he says in verse 8 of chapter 5, is walking in love. God is love. God is light. So all the unholy things of verse 3 and 4 are not to be named among us. Right? Because there's no entrance into the kingdom if that's our, our interest in life. And we mustn't be deceived, right? Verse 6 talks about the children of disobedience, right? Who have, who have been deceived, who think that they can have both worlds. So we're to separate from them, verse 7 says, be not partakers with them. Why? Verse 8, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light. See, look at that. It's not you are in the light. It's what Isaiah 60 verse 1 says. You are light. You are light. That's a powerful thing, isn't it? Not you are in the light. Somebody switch the light on. No, you are the light. Switch yourself on. <laughs> you know, become light. Help others. Show the love of God. Walk, make the decisions, make the right choices. Turn away from darkness, turn toward the light. For the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, I'm not suggesting that we, in fact, the opposite, I'm suggesting we don't broadcast good deeds so that people could admire us. That's of the, actually of the darkness. That's, that's what the Pharisees did. But we have to <coughs> do 
the right things, the fruit of the Spirit, have to be manifest in our lives. Verse 9, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is the acceptable unto the Lord. And so, verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So then he goes on to verse 13, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, awake thou that sleepest. And so the apostle has quoted a passage which on our first look at in, in, in Isaiah 60 is referring to Jerusalem in the age to come arising from the dead. Well, brothers and sisters, what the apostle is saying is if we are new Jerusalem, if we are the inhabitants of New Jerusalem, if we are the Jerusalem which is from above, if we are the kings and priests of the age to come in preparation, well, then the principle applies. We are to walk as in the kingdom. We are to live a kingdom life. We have arisen from spiritual death. That's what baptism was, wasn't it? You have arisen from spiritual death. Christ has given us light. See then, he says in verse 15, see then that he walks circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now there, the apostle, I think, is going to the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ of the wise and foolish virgins. Huh? The foolish virgins didn't have oil. Huh? The wise did have oil and therefore their lamps could shine. Oh, what does that mean for us? Not to run out of oil. Look at verse 16. Redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Using the time. The day of opportunity that is, have, has been given to us. So then the apostle goes on to show how that applies in married life. How it applies to children respecting their parents. How it applies in the workplace to servants who are, look, look at verse 5 of chapter 6. Servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ. So even a slave was told to do a good job. Because that would honour Christ, because the person wouldn't be doing it <laughs> because they wanted to please their master. Why would you want to please a slave owner? But that you're pleasing God and your demeanor would speak volumes and masters would uh, behave in a way that was befitting uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, Put on the whole armour of God. It's the same theme, isn't it? It's gone all the way through this epistle, from chapter 5 all the way through into chapter 6. This is the lesson of Isaiah 59 and 60. It's such a beautiful thing. What was Isaiah 59? The world is in sin. Jew, Gentile, whichever you are, you're under sin. And you can't get out of it yourself. But if you recognize it, if you want to get out of it, if you confess your sins, as the voice of Isaiah 59 verse 12, 
makes clear, our transgressions are multiplied before. If we will confess our sins, then the Lord Jesus Christ will defeat that sin for us. And through faith, our sins will be forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be redeemed from sin. And when the Redeemer comes to Zion, we will have the prospect of eternal life in the glorious kingdom to come. And that's what the apostle says. Now, put on, put on the armor of God that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the diabolos. We need to take this absolutely. See, it's no good just going with the flow because social trends can sweep us along. We don't even realize that our minds have been affected by the trends in the world. I just think those, those of you who are my age and older, just think back to uh, when, when we were younger and just think of the changes in social uh, acceptability. How many things that were terribly wrong then are now celebrated as, as to desirable. They even want to teach our littlest children these things. Now, attitudes change. And the danger is that we are influenced by those things, that we want to take up causes that are not part of the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, because there's moral pressure apparently placed upon us because thinking has changed. And it's a subtle thing. You can't say how it changed or uh, how my own thoughts have been influenced by the world in which we live. If we knew, we would perhaps stop it happening so easily. But you can see, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There are forces, you might say, you know, the, the forces of, uh, of the internet is a good analogy. You know, the, uh, the worldview of the mass global market uh, penetrates our expectations and our ambitions. And we have just to be wise. And the way to be wise is to keep that word of God coming into our minds uh, and, and really focusing on the word of God to be a light in our lives. Because what we want in verse 13, we want to be there. You know, it's a, it's a scene of a battleground. You know, an armed conflict, sword against sword, uh, sword clashing against helmet, and so on. And in the Roman world, of course, that's the way they did battle. And when the dust has settled and the battle is over and the injured and the, the wounded and the dead are strewn about the ground, a few people are still standing. And the apostle says in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armour of God, that he may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation. Paul has otherwise called it the hope of salvation. Take the helmet of the hope of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. This is what Isaiah is trying to get us to do. O house of Jacob, come ye, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Just take stock where we are. We're, we're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ holding the great scroll of Isaiah and taking from his reading the clues as to how we should approach it. So we're listening to the scroll being read by the Ethiopian eunuch and we're taking the clue as to what we should pay attention to. So two things, whose voice is it that we're reading or listening to? And when is the application? Is it at the first or is it the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this text, although written in, uh, economically in this way, does have shape to it. And these sort of, you know, these sort of patterns which uh, represent it in this sort of way. Um, I know they're not everybody's cup of tea, but... They're there. They actually really are there. And so we, we pay attention to the fact that the text has a shape. And sometimes that shape uh, is circular or ring composition. And when we recognize that, we see that passages are in parallel. And Isaiah 42 verse 1 to 4 is parallel to verses 18 to 21. And by putting those two together, we get a deeper insight, I believe. But there is something more obvious about the scriptural uh, structure, and that, that's simply the poetic parallelism that we would all, I think, understand. I tried to set out the text um, just recognising that parallelism. I've got no Hebrew qualifications to do this, but I don't think actually we need Hebrew qualifications because... Even uh, the Jewish Publication Society tells us that the text is really words and spaces between the words. Uh, then you have to work out what's going on. But there's a rhythm, and you can see that rhythm here. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. The Lord is the servant, and at the same time, he is the chosen one. He is the elect. They're not two people. There's not a servant and then there's the chosen one. The servant is the chosen one. The chosen one is chosen to be a servant. He is upheld by God who delights in what he does. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved of his father, uh, supported and strengthened by his father, who is delighting in the obedience of his son, who is willing to serve, though he is chosen from the foundation of the world. So the parallelism is so powerful in bringing together those ideas. He's called uh, Israel. Uh, and uh, that is, as we read in chapter 49. And this is interesting because servant and elect, those terms apply to Israel. First uh, 
First uh, Chronicles 16, verse 13, for example. Uh, and so the Lord Jesus is the individual personification of the nation. He is the one, the prince with God that Israel ought to be collectively. He is the head, the representative of the whole. And then 42 says, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. The spirit, Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 9 tell us about the spirit poured upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a kingdom of power, but it was poured upon him at his baptism. But notice the scale of it goes beyond his ministry to the Jews, way to the future, to the culmination. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. You know, when we read this, it's it's so obvious to us, isn't it, that uh, the purpose of God is to embrace Gentiles. The promises to Abraham embrace Gentiles. We wonder why Israel in that first century time just despised Gentiles, couldn't understand that they might be included in hope of Israel. This was their blindness because Isaiah is pretty clear. He should bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, how will he do that? Uh, and what is it? Well, first of all, judgment is a great theme of Isaiah. Just got your Bibles there. Let's just turn quickly through some passages just to point out how significant that word is. The Lord Jesus Christ's mission is to bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. You see, go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse uh, 21. What had gone wrong? during the days uh, of those kings before Hezekiah. What, what was it that, if you had picked one thing, that had gone wrong? And verse 21 says, How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderous. So Jerusalem had descended to that terrible situation of being uh, controlled by bandits, essentially, by, by wicked men who um, used religion to their own purposes, who embraced those religions which pandered to the, uh, the, the desires of the flesh. And what happened was that judgment, the role of government is to bring justice, God's government, to bring righteousness to bear. When the spirit is on the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 11. How is it manifest? How is it manifest when the, the Lord is, uh, the spirit comes upon him? What it says is that with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness, unbiased justice, he will not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. To establish God's ways in the earth, God's righteous judgment, have government which is uncorruptible and brings truth to bear. What a contrast with the world in which you live. In chapter 1, verse 27, the promise is Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. So this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And Isaiah tells us a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule 
in judgment. So, you know, the kingdom, of course, involves food for the, for the, for the needy, involves an ecological transformation. It involves freedom from war. Uh, but at the real heart of the promise of the kingdom is judgment. God's ways being taught, people being instructed and guided and led in that path. And of course, we don't need to stress that that's the path we should be walking in even now. And just see that in chapter 26 of Isaiah, which is a beautiful passage, which is speaking about the hope uh, of, of uh, the faithful waiting for the coming of the Lord, waiting for death to be swallowed up in victory, waiting. How are they waiting? How, how should we wait for the time when he should bring forth judgment to the Gentiles? And here in chapter 26, verse 8, is the answer. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Yahweh, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night, yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, this is such an important concept that our desire for the kingdom is a desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ bring judgment and righteousness to the nations. And as we wait patiently, as, as you know, we wait and in the night we think about what is the purpose of life? And what is, who are we? With my spirit within me, I will seek the earth. We yearn for righteousness to be manifest in the earth. And that must mean that in our own lives, in the lives of our ecclesia, thy judgments, the way of thy judgments is the way of life we seek to, to follow. And that, brothers and sisters, is a, a really strong exhortation for us all that we seek God's way of judgments in the earth. We, we seek to follow his way. We're not in a postmodern ecclesia, are we? We're not every man does that which he thinks is right in his own eyes. We choose, we pick and choose uh, you know, what we what we agree with. Now, we listen to the word of God and we follow its ways, even though it now goes right against the grain of our modern society. So should we protest? Should we take to the streets? But no, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't, did he? Look, verse two and three. He shall not cry nor lift up his voice in the street. Oh, when that's quoted in Matthew chapter 12, it's, it's in the setting of the fact that Jesus was doing miracles and the crowd were flocking, flocking around him and, and, and would have you know, taken him and made him king. And it was in the gaze of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees, they loved to lift up their voice in the street. They sounded a trumpet before them. And when they went to do their gifts, uh, their arms before men, they wanted everybody to notice. They, they publicized it. They advertised themselves. Look what we're doing. Look how, look how good we are. But the Lord was doing great good, but he didn't advertise himself in that way. He didn't cry or lift up his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. 
he didn't join in protests. The Lord Jesus Christ would never have encouraged his disciples to join in protest. How, how could the disciples you know, take to the streets against Roman injustice or the, the rights of the Edomites or the cause of the Syrians or you know, the downtrodden Samaritans? They just couldn't do that. That was not God's way. And it's so alien to our understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure there were people, maybe like Judas Iscariot and, and others, who were egging him on. Lord, why don't you say more? Why don't you stand up against the injustices that are going on? Yes, he rebuked the scribes and Pharisees, but he didn't do more than that. Uh, he, he, he told them the truth. Now, why, why did the Lord not lift up his voice in the street? Because, in verse 3, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoke flax shall he not quench. Right. Now, what is a bruised reed? Egypt was a bruised reed. Uh, you couldn't rely upon Egypt. If you put your weight on, on the staff, the reed of Egypt, it would snap and penetrate your hand. They were unreliable. Uh, they were weak when it really came to the crunch. But the Lord would not break such a bruised reed. A smoking flax, a flax was a wick for the oil lamp. And as it started to flicker out, uh, it might get smoky. But the word there, smoking, is the word uh, that has the sense of dimness. It's used in 1 Samuel 3, verse 2, uh, where it says, Ere the lamp of God went out, just as the light of the lamp was dying out. And it's used in Isaiah 61, verse 3, where it's the word heaviness, the spirit of heaviness. So a bruised reed is a, a partly broken person who's got no strength left in them. And a smoking flax is somebody whose spiritual, spiritual flame is about to flicker out, maybe because the spirit of heaviness, the difficult circumstances of life, have got too much. And depression has really taken all the spark out of life. And how could such people be helped in a crowd, in a crowd of protesters, in the loud shouting in the streets? They, they couldn't. The Lord wasn't after popularity. He knew that all would forsake him. No, he was seeking the broken and the weak. And they're the ones that he would need time, quietness, privacy to help. I will have a look at example of that in the New Testament in a moment. So the, the work of the Lord to bring judgment to the Gentiles required, first of all, the still small voice to speak to the hearts of those who are needing healing, those who are needing strengthening, those who needed uh, their, their energies uh, boosted in spiritual matters. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. Now, this is really very interesting because 
if you look at the word for bruised in the Hebrew, it's the word discouraged there. And if you look at the, the smoking flax, it's, it's the word for fail um, in verse 4. So the Lord came to help the bruised and those were flickering out. But he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't. His light would never be put out. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he set judgment in the earth. And why was that? Because he was the rod out of the stem of Jesse. He was the light, the great light uh, of the world. So put alongside the, um, the uh, put alongside there the, the two passages and see what, uh, what you get there. I'm trying to get rid of myself on the screen here okay so let's let's put alongside Matthew 12 verse 18 and you can see that it is virtually uh, exactly the same uh, but with a few differences so going down verse 18 19 and 20 that's straightforward but instead of he shall bring forth judgment unto truth we have he shall till he send forth judgment unto victory. Well, how do you explain that? Well, a little bit of word study there. When we look up that word truth, the syntax in the Hebrew is, is the other way around from what we read in the English. When we read, he shall bring forth judgment unto truth. The literal is to truth, he shall bring forth justice or judgment to truth. Truth is the goal. Truth is the end point, the end in sight. Judgment is about bringing truth to bear. And when we look at that word victory in Matthew's gospel record, it's the word nikos, it's the ordinary word victory, but that is used in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, to translate uh, Isaiah 25, verse 8. And to go back to the Hebrew in Isaiah 25, verse 8, and it has the sense of the goal, the end in sight. So truth and victory really are equivalent. The Lord's victory over sin and death and his victory over the nations is, in effect, the establishment of the truth in the earth, the aim to fill the earth with that truth. We also notice that verse 4 of Isaiah 42, the Lord does not quote from, from that, or Matthew doesn't quote from that. It's as if the rest of the gospel is showing us that he wasn't failing, he wasn't discouraged. Uh, he would carry on to complete that purpose. Matthew 12, verse 21, in his name shall the Gentiles trust is not, it does seem, a quotation from that verse, but, but summarizes um, other, other scripture in Isaiah, which um, we could, could look at. Romans 15, verse 12, uses the same quote, in his name shall the Gentiles trust, uh, apparently from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. So I just mentioned these, you want to chase them up, but I haven't got time to to dwell in them. But what is 
special about that is in his name shall the Gentiles trust from Isaiah 11 verse 10. Of course, it starts off that the Lord Jesus Christ is the rod of the stem of Jesse, the rod that will not be bruised, that will be entirely trustworthy, that we all can lean upon the rod and it will not snap or break in any way at all. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse five uh, goes on to say, Thus saith God Yahweh, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes. So the Gentiles have blind eyes, uh, but they're going to be opened by the gospel to bring out the prisoners from the prison and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house to deliver us from the bondage of, uh, of darkness, the, the prison house of sin. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to broken images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So let's just take an example now of how the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who would not break a bruised rod and would not snuff out the light. What have we got in... Uh, in John, let's look at this because this is amazing. We know the Lord Jesus Christ opened the eyes of the blind. And in John chapter nine, he was gonna do just that. He was gonna open the eyes of, of a blind man in a way that would be so remarkable, uh, such a notable miracle that nobody could deny it. But, but it's John chapter eight uh, I want to look at because the light to the Gentiles is exactly what John chapter 8 is telling us. In verse 12 of John chapter 8, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. This was what Isaiah promised, a light to the Gentiles. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But look, look at the incident in John 8 that 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 uh, precedes these wonderful words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the woman taken in adultery. It's an amazing thing. If ever there was a broken reed, if ever there was a light uh, that was being extinguished, it was that poor woman. And the Lord didn't break her. He didn't put out the light, did he? In fact, he put out those that would have stoned her and they were convicted of their own conscience. And Jesus was left alone. Now, the Lord would never have met such a woman had he been you know, protesting in the streets, had he been attracting crowds, had he been going on a, uh, you know, a campaign trail as, as the presidents of America want to do, you know getting his supporters out in the street and making a, a great fanfare 
of all the good things that he has done. That's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and how, how powerful, and it says in verse 9, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, He said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, what an influence those words would have had upon that woman. How strengthened would she be, not in herself, because she would have accepted that what she'd done was, was entirely, entirely wrong. But that was in Jesus a way of going forward and a way which was free of sin. Here was the light of the world. Let's see, he goes on to say in verse 16, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true. His judgment was true. Well, look, that's what Isaiah 42 verse 3 said was going to happen. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Now, the question of, was he right to be able to say these things himself? What witnesses did he have? That's a subject that Isaiah has been talking about. Jesus says in 825, uh, when they said to him, who art thou? Jesus says, and that even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. And that's the language of Isaiah in many places. Just one example, 4126. Then the Lord says, uh, when he have lifted up the son of man, then he shall know that I am. I am the manifestation of he who will be the character the glory and character of the father himself manifested and Isaiah anticipates this when he says that we will come to know and believe that I am he that, that God is the true God and in the Lord Jesus Christ we get to see and know the character of God in performing all that is promised in the prophecy of Isaiah. He says, the Lord says in verse 29, I do always those things that please him. He was the one in whom God says, my soul delighteth. And he shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So what a lovely thing to see is in the context of a broken reed and a a flax wick that was about to go out completely. So I want to move forward now to Isaiah 49. And as we do so, let's remember that uh, the concept, Isaiah has been talking, God through Isaiah has been talking about the servant, about the servant. But what's so stunning now when we come to chapter 49 is that the servant himself speaks. We say, well, how can that be? Surely it's Isaiah. Of course it's Isaiah. But Isaiah is speaking prophetically. It's the spirit of Christ in Isaiah that is now speaking as Christ 
will speak. The Lord came to fulfill that which was uh, spoken. He was the word made flesh. The words he would say, the words he would be, were already written. He came to be those words, to really be them, not just to say them, but to be them. And 49 starts a new section in Isaiah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. 49, I'm going to suggest to you, 49 up to chapter um, 50, 58, certainly, is uh, a section that uh, has its own structure again. But let's not get too deep into that at the moment. Let's, so when we read 49 verse 1, it says, Listen, O Isles, unto me, and you think, God, oh, it's God speaking again. Hearken ye people from far. Yahweh hath called me. So it's not Yahweh speaking. It's called me from the womb. And that is a stunning thing. The servant now speaks. And if you just turn the page over to Isaiah chapter 50, um, the third servant song, verse 4, the servant speaks again. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. But then if you turn over to Isaiah 52, verse 13, the beginning of the fourth servant song, it's not the servant speaking now. It's back to chapter 42. Behold, my servant, the Lord now speaks about his son. So the four, the four songs, the first and the fourth, are, look at him. The middle two are the words of the voice of the Lord himself. But 49 is not the first time the Lord speaks. In fact, there's a very... Uh, Lovely little snippet at the end of verse 16 of chapter 48. See, 48 is, is the culmination of God telling the future, bringing it to pass, bringing the captives home, uh, establishing Jerusalem as the world capital and bringing Babylon down into the depths and God says, as his purpose is accomplished, and this is what the nations of the world will have to come to accept. Verse 16 of chapter 48, come ye near unto me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. So God hath not spoken in secret. The world ought to know, the world will be held responsible. As we all know, outside the United Nations building, Bunce Park, just opposite the United Nations building, there's a wall, and on the wall is the prophecy of Isaiah. God has not spoken in secret. But now look at the end of that verse. It's not God speaking. And now the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. And alone we say, oh, that, that must be the prophet speaking. It's the prophet speaking as the Lord Jesus Christ. All the way through, this servant has been on the stage as Isaiah has been speaking to the, to the congregation. 
And in 42, he says, look, behold him. And as he carries on speaking, the voice comes, the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. And then in chapter 49, the voice of Isaiah gives way to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he tells us of, of his origins, uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. And made me a polished shaft in his quiver, hath he hid me. And so the Lord uniquely called from the womb, from the time before he was born, uh, the voice of God, I believe, would have been heard by, by the, the unborn baby. Uh, remember, at the voice of Mary, uh, John the Baptist, before he was born, leapt in his mother's womb. And the Lord had prepared his son. Uh, he'd given him a mouth like a sharp sword. The Lord spoke the word of God with such precision, you know, so, so effectively. When he spoke to that woman, it was as sharp but as kind a cut as you could have. He separated the sin from the sinner and gave her an opportunity to go and sin no more. Protected in the shadow of his father's hand, the instrument that his father used to accomplish his purpose. A polished shaft, an arrow hidden in a quiver, able to hit a target without deviation. He had a work to do, which was to do battle against the power of sin. And he did it. And he said unto me, says the Lord, verse 3, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The Lord Jesus Christ manifested the glory of God, full of grace and truth, and was glorified himself to sit at the right hand of his father, in the heavenlies. But then what, what about verse four? Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength in vain. That's, that's a strange one, isn't it? And I think, you think, well, how could that be the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I'm sure, brothers and sisters, that we have to allow the fact that the Lord could consider thoughts, not accept them, but could consider thoughts, uh, that would be the sort of temptations that you and I would have. As he looked around, he, as the Lord hung upon the cross, all his disciples had forsaken him. The nation esteemed him smitten of God. They esteemed him forsaken. The whole nation had left him on his own. For what purpose? For what purpose was the Lord suffering? Had he spent his strength for no purpose in vain? 
but of course that, that's not where it stops. The, the thought is answered immediately. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord. See, I, I think verse four, the first part is, I'd say not, not uh, a thought the Lord would dwell on, but a thought put in his mind by those who doubted that he had achieved anything. There would have been many who said, well, what was that all about? You know, like, like a Judas Iscariot. What, what was that all about? We haven't got anything out of this at all. The Romans are still here. The, the scribes and Pharisees are still in charge. We're, we're poor men. We haven't got any, anything to show for all the labour and all the opportunities that have been squandered. The, the fleshly mind would think like that. And I think the Lord is asking that question. You know, have I laboured in vain? Have I spent my strength for naught? And the answer is, my judgment is with the Lord, my work with my God. The Lord Jesus Christ lived in the presence of his father. He did not need other men around him. I thought he welcomed friendship. Of course he did. But he didn't need them in the way that we seem so badly to need. it, Because his faith was in God and he had a work to do and he knew that his reward would come. So, when verse 5 down, you see it follows the same pattern of thought. And now, saith the Lord, now this is the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of prophecy, rehearsing what God has said to him. And now, saith the Lord, that formed me from the womb to be his servant. You see, the Lord hath called me from the womb, then verse 5 repeats it, that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered. He had a, he had a, a work to do. He, verse 4 is saying, yes, but they didn't believe. That was in vain. What, what was the point of all that? But then it goes on in verse 5, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh. That purpose is going to be accomplished. Not until the second coming of the Lord and, and the Jews being regathered and converted, will they really be gathered into covenant relationship again? But it will happen, and the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorious in that regard. But this is what God had said to the Son, verse 6. He says, this is a light thing, that thou shouldest be my servant to raise the tribes of Jacob and to restore the perverted of Israel. There was, you know, are you worrying that you haven't yet brought Israel back to me let me tell you something says the father I'm going to give you not only to restore the preserved of Israel but I'm going to give you to be a light for the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation and to the end of the earth you see the point don't think you failed in bringing Israel back that's going to take time that's going to take another 2,000 years that's going to take you coming back. That's going to take Armageddon. That's going to take a great earthquake. That's going to take all those terrible things before they'll come back to me. But I'm going to give you for a light to the Gentiles. There's going to be a times of the Gentiles. There's going to be an opportunity for the Gentiles who are blind and deaf, who are going to have their eyes opened and their ears opened to see and receive the salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and be grafted into the hope of Israel. That's what Romans chapter 11 is about, isn't it? But that is what the Lord's thought pattern is there. He'd been called for a purpose. 
Was it in vain? Certainly not. But before it could be accomplished, it would be a light for the Gentiles. So let's see how the Apostle Paul takes hold of those words. First of all, we've got to look in Acts chapter 13, because that's where the Apostle makes an astounding statement. An astounding statement, Acts chapter 13, verse 47. He quotes this passage that we're looking at from Isaiah 49. And what he says is this, Acts, 40, Acts 13, verse 47. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. That, that's a quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 6, isn't it? But the Lord hath commanded us. Now, what must have happened is that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who was going to fulfill Isaiah 49, no doubt about it. But he had said to the Apostle Paul and to the other apostles, you're going to be the ones who are going to take me to the Gentiles. You're going to be the vessel that is going to carry me and my words of salvation to the Gentiles. You're going to be the light. How could they be the light if Jesus was the light? Because they were going to show the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel to those Gentiles. And so the Apostle Paul understands in Galatians that he himself has been prepared for this role. I mean, an astonishing thought that the Apostle would read Isaiah 49 and say, do you know what? That's me. I've been made in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been made a disciple for other people to copy as I copy the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and he was well aware of the extraordinary responsibility that rested upon him and how he had to trust in the Lord. He couldn't trust in others. Um, all have forsaken me, he says. He was like the Lord Jesus Christ, having to turn to the Lord. So in Galatians... Uh, he says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Uh, and then he goes on to say that in his work, verse 24 of Galatians, they glorified God in me. He was a vehicle for the glory of God because he, like the Lord Jesus Christ, was a servant, a servant of Christ. And there must have been many a time when the Apostle Paul thought that his work was in vain. Don't you think? Many times when he must have thought, what am I doing here? You know, when he's bobbing up and down in the sea for the umpteenth time. And he's thinking, what's going on here? Uh, when Asia turns against him. When he goes to Athens and hardly anybody wants to listen. And he... he you know, if he was thinking in a human way, he would have counted the steps he traveled and the pains he'd gone through. Was it all in vain? But he understood that it was God's purpose that mattered. And so he was defensive of his role to the glory of God. So he says in chapter two, verse two, I went up by revelation 
and commuted unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which are of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. You know, he, he pummeled his own body, didn't he? Lest he himself should be a castaway. His mission was to show the light of Christ to the Gentiles. The one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was made of a woman, made under the law. And the rest were little children embraced in the spirit of Isaiah's prophecy. Jerusalem gathering her children, now Gentile children, bringing them into the love and bonds of the truth of the gospel. So we can understand how the Apostle Paul was using Galatians. The Lord Jesus Christ has appointed him and the apostles to take the light of the gospel to those Gentiles, to take Jesus, to take the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So we have in these um, wonderful uh, prophecies, um, the whole mystery of the gospel revealed. I've just got, I've got a couple of minutes to, uh, to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to go here because there's another quotation uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 from Isaiah 49. Because Isaiah 49 um, goes on, as we read, where God now speaks to his son. Verse 7 of Isaiah 14. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth. That's Isaiah 53, isn't it? He was despised and rejected of men. The Lord knew that even before we get to 53. The son is asking the question, or the question has been asked of him. Have I laboured in vain? Have I spent my strength for naught? The one who has been despised and rejected of men. To him whom the nation abhorreth, they esteem him smitten of God, a servant of rulers, a lowly person. The promise, kings shall see and arise, princes shall worship. The rulers of this world will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow because Yahweh is faithful. The Holy One of Israel will do what he has promised. So verse says, thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped you. Now, these are words spoken to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father. God heard his prayer. The prayer from the, from the cross, he heard it. He sent from above. Psalm 18 tells us. He shook the earth. He came down. He delivered the Lord Jesus Christ from the tomb. The stone was rolled back. The sun was raised elevated to the right hand of his father. In a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, the Lord Jesus Christ, as eternal life. And I will give thee for a covenant of the people, the new covenant, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth, and to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish the purpose. 
that Israel will be regathered. The prisoners, the Gogian prisoners, will be brought back. But for the times of the Gentiles now, these are words which have exhortational power to you and I. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul quotes those very words in verse 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. Let's just follow the train of thought. We have to go back into the previous chapter. Now, the previous chapter is talking about resurrection. It's talking about us sharing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about us enduring this light affliction, which is but for a moment, waiting for the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise uh, in verse 4 of chapter 5, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And we're encouraged to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because verse 14 tells us the love of Christ constraineth us because that we ju thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead and that he died for all. But they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In other words, as we wait patiently for justice to be established in the earth, we live by the love of Christ. And we live as new creatures, verse 17 says. Old things are passed away. Like that woman in John chapter 8. Go and sin no more. And then the Apostle Paul explains his role in all this. He says in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God was reaching out to all nations to bring us into a covenant relationship through the gospel, not imputing their trespasses, having our sins forgiven us. Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn thee. And hath committed unto us, he says, us the apostles, has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now he says, look at this, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what, that's what Isaiah 49, he understood was, was to be the light to the Gentiles. We are ambassadors. We are taking Christ to the Gentiles as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's a reference to Isaiah 53, that we might be made the righteousness of God. That's Isaiah 51. So now he says, have you got the point? We are, we are like the Apostle Paul, part of the Christ body. We are to be as Christ. We are living in him. We then as workers together beseech you that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Right? In vain. Picking up Isaiah 49, that question. Have we labored in vain? We beseech you. By the grace of God, ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in a day of salvation have I succored thee. In other words, God had said to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his son, I have heard you. This is the day of resurrection. I have succored you. Behold, now is the accepted time. 
Now is the day of salvation. What had the Lord Jesus Christ been? Uh, what was he going to be? He was going to be my salvation unto the end of the earth. This is the day of opportunity, the day of salvation, the times of the Gentiles, when the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. Now is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, how long is that day going to last? How long an opportunity are we going to have? You know, COVID stopped us doing things. In, you know, you're in England now. You're under lockdown again. You can't do the things you thought you were going to be able to do this week. The day of opportunity can suddenly close. Except the time will be over. And the day of vengeance will come. That's what the Apostle Paul, these words are steeped in the whole of that section of Isaiah, that we might not labor in vain, but that we might put our trust and confidence in the Father through the Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and understand that the salvation of Jesus from death is our salvation as well, that the Spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ leaned upon is something that we can lean upon ourselves. How thankful we are then when each one of us knows the plague of our own hearts, can see in the Lord Jesus Christ not an advocate of protest, not an advocate of shouting and loudness, but a still small voice, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth. Let us wait for that time, brothers and sisters, in the way of righteousness. looking at the servant song uh, in context. I chose this subject because in our adult Sunday school class, which has continued each week on uh, for the breaking of bread on Sunday, uh, throughout the, the lockdown period, we've been looking at the prophecy of Isaiah. And it obviously is a huge thing. We've gone through it now over the last two years or so, perhaps longer than that. I don't rightly remember exactly when we started, but it is clearly a very big scroll to go through and there's no point trying to summarize or give an overview. So what I've chosen is really the first two servant songs, as they're called, and I want to look at them in context. What I mean by that is Isaiah's got some wonderful passages, wonderful verses, which we use an awful lot and we quote them in our public talks and so on. But if we're asked about the verses either side of our chosen section and we're asked to explain those verses, I think, well, I find it's a really difficult thing to do. In other words, I've been lifting verses out of Isaiah because they prove what we want them 
to prove. But the context, the flow of thought, the setting in which those wonderful passages which we quote are set is not that obvious. So the challenge going through Isaiah was to try to follow the train of thought, not just the purple passages, but, but all of what Isaiah is telling us to look at. So that's what we wanted to do and to really look at Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 in particular. What I'd like to do, I will put some slides up later on, but what I'd like to do now, if, if you uh, will not just put the log on the fire and sit back, but get your Bibles open and turn to the second book of Chronicles to look at the historical setting that we're told Isaiah uh, prophesied against. We're told that he prophesied in the reign of Isaiah, Jotham and Hezekiah. I'd just like to point out some of the features of those reigns that we hear in Second Chronicles that give us the colour, the backcloth to the times of Isaiah and understand why the imagery that Isaiah is moved to speak was so vivid and so impressive. So we start in Isaiah's reign, Second Chronicles 26. And I'm not going to go through in great detail, just pick out some points to illustrate. Isaiah was a king who reigned a long time. And this is what it says in verse 9 of 26. It says, Isaiah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. Also, he built towers in the desert and dig many wells, for he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains, husbandmen also, and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. Now, with such a long reign and relatively uh, successful reign as king, uh, over 50 years, and he loved husbandry and he dig many whales. The land must have been quite a sight. It must have been a, a wonderful garden, a, a national park. The whole land turned into a verdant pasture with vines and uh, fruit trees and so on. So it must have been a beautiful place at the time of Isaiah. When the Assyrians were going to come in, of course, they would devastate the land. They would rip up the trees. They would deliberately spoil the land and they would try to prevent in future there being good harvests by, by spoiling the land. Given that that's the situation, in Isaiah chapter 5, we can understand the song of the vineyard as a key concept in Isaiah. I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And, and that was the land Isaiah had developed. He loved husbandry. The hills of Israel were very fruitful and they produced vines in abundance. But God says that he looked to the vine of Israel and it didn't bring forth grapes. It brought forth wild grapes and this is what God said he would do verse 6 of chapter 5 of Isaiah I will lay it waste it shall not be pruned nor digged but there shall come up briars and thorns 
I will also command the clouds that they rain not upon it. So what they lived through during the, the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah was a time of uh, where the land was ecologically destroyed. And that's one of the pictures that Isaiah develops for us because the, the, the future is of a land restored, a land which is like Eden. Isaiah, we're told, of course, was lifted up in pride and tried to offer incense on the altar himself. And in verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 26, we're told that uh, the leprosy rose up in his forehead. So here was a dramatic and very uh, troubling thing that the king had gone in. He had presumed to be a Melchizedek priest. He had presumed to take on the priestly role, unauthorized. And he had, uh, his thinking was completely wrong. God signaled that by breaking leprosy out in his forehead. Go back to Leviticus chapter 13. He was utterly unclean. Here was a man whose thoughts were not to follow God's thoughts, but a man who lifted himself up in pride. What Isaiah chapter 1 tells us is that Isaiah, in that condition, was himself representative of the nation. His leprosy was speaking of their leprosy. So when you go to Isaiah chapter 1, you find in verse 5, that the nation is described in this way. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot, even unto the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. What Isaiah, Isaiah manifested was uh, typical of the nation. The king spoke for the nation. His condition was the condition of the nation. And it's an amazing thing that even in that terrible disease state, spiritual disease state, God says to them in chapter one of Isaiah, verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, that was the color of leprosy, quick, raw flesh, breaking through the skin, uh, human nature, as it were, visible and active and spreading. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. White as snow was the colour of healed leprosy. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So Isaiah's prophecy starts with the reign of Isaiah, where the land was beautiful, but the people were leprous. And we're going to see how through Isaiah that is redressed, that in providing the healing for their sins, uh, they would then have hope once more of an inheritance restored. Isaiah's son Jotham was a good king. Uh, we aren't told much about him, except that he didn't go into the house of God. Isaiah's father had been thrown out of the house of God and Jotham didn't want to go in. He didn't seem to want a chance uh, incurring the wrath of God by going where his father went. And his son Ahaz was a dreadful king. And he went even further in shutting up the house of God and stopping anybody else from going into that house. He closed down true worship in Israel. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 29, these are the words of Hezekiah, that uh, we're told, 
that our fathers trespassed. And then verse 7 of Second Chronicles 29 says, Also they have shut up the doors of the porch. Now notice this next phrase. And put out the lamps and have not burnt incense nor offered burnt offering in the holy place unto the God of Israel. They have put out the lamps. And what Isaiah, the great prophecy of Isaiah does is to rekindle the flame. Uh, it, it shows us how God is going to light the lamp of Jerusalem, how the city is going to be a, a light that is on a hill that all the nations of the world can see the light of the Lord. And that is really a powerful imagery set against the fact that Ahaz had put out the lights and closed down true worship. So Jerusalem was just an ordinary city dedicated to the ways of men, and it was not a spiritual light in the earth. And because of that, if you look at Second Chronicles 28, you look at that, uh, you'll see that God brought nations against Judah. And one of the key words that uh, occurs in, in 28 is the word captives. Just look at that. So 20, 28 verse 8, the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren. So I missed, I missed verse 5. Verse 5 says, wherefore Yahweh his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Assyria. And they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives. Verse 8, the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren, 200,000 women, sons and daughters. Now those captives were sent back. We're told that in this same chapter, verse 11, they were exhorted. Now hear me therefore and deliver the captives again, which you have taken captive of your brethren. So Judah was familiar, sadly, with the concept of captives being taken in vast numbers, huge numbers of their people, their women and their children uh, were, were taken captive, but they'd also had the experience. Can you imagine in verse 11, the joy of, of having your children back? Your children have been taken away from you, and now you have the, your children back. Verse 17, though, tells us that it, it went from bad to worse. Verse 17 says, for again, the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. So the people of Judah, the men of Judah, were often bereft of their own families. And what happens is when Hezekiah comes, the great reformer, was going to reopen the house of God, was going to relight the flame of true worship. This is what he offers to them in verse 9 of 29. He says, For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. But he offers them the hope that their captives will return. And so in chapter 30 and verse 9, he says, when he, he appeals to the, the northern tribes who are still there, he says, For if he turn again unto Yahweh, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. 
when we go through uh, Isaiah, and let's just look at some passages, let's just quickly go to Isaiah 35, for example, I'm just picking out some of the, the numerous references in Isaiah to the captives. Uh, and, and bear in mind that these are particularly the women and children. What we have is this wonderful picture of, of captives, I call them today refugees or hostages, which have been taken in vast numbers, returning to their families. So Isaiah chapter 35, verses 8 to 10. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We, we sing that and we quite rightly apply it to our hope of the kingdom. But in the first setting. This was a promise that the people would have understood that, that families could be reunited, women and children restored to their husbands and, and to their parents. Just move into Isaiah chapter 51. Verse 3. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her worst places. Comfort because her children have been taken away. Jerusalem has, has been bereft of her children. They've been taken captive. But now the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort her. And he will make her wilderness like Eden. And his, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. So that is, remember, Isaiah had turned the land into like the garden of Eden, probably. But now God says, after the devastation of the Assyrians, and, and after that, the Babylonians, and after that, uh, many nations, uh, Zion's children will return, and they will return from captivity, and the land itself will be glorified. And so we have again in verse 11, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. And when they return, we find that Jerusalem now is going to be this great light in the earth. And so chapter 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. So those are some of the passages where you can see that the very simple uh, reading of the kings that uh, reigned during Isaiah's time give us a, a, a background for the portrayal of things that ultimately will develop on an even greater scale. Just put these slides up because one of the things that uh, struck us going through Isaiah in our small class was just how much um, current political events illustrate what Isaiah is saying. I'm not saying that Isaiah is talking about our world in, uh, in the immediate uh, uh, setting because much of what Isaiah is saying is about the nation of Israel and what's going to happen to them in captivity and in their return. But you say, well, what, what was it like for refugees? Well, we only have to look at our news stories to look at this. Look, these, these are uh, 
These are people fleeing from, you might say, from the Assyrians. These, these are people in Syria uh, who are fleeing from those coming from, um, you know, the ISIS and, and so on uh, that had their base in Iraq, in ancient Assyria. These people are fleeing from the Assyrians, just as Isaiah's time. Well, that, that's what Isaiah's saying. That's the message of Isaiah. He's saying to the people, no more captivity. If you trust in God, you will be delivered ultimately from the captivity of Babylon for that, that uh, era, but also, of course, from the captivity of sin and death. So, you know, it, it's quite uh, amazing to me uh, just to see these things in Isaiah sort of come to life here. And look at this slide. This is quite a, a, a remarkable picture. I just picked it up off, off the internet, but it is. Uh, can you see these, these refugees and captives? They're sheep, aren't they? Right? There, there's the sheep behind them. And, and you look at them and you think, oh, is, it, is it a person or is it a sheep? But that's what Isaiah is speaking of. He's talking about people as sheep whom the great shepherd is going to bring back to the land along uh, pastures and by streams in the desert. This is the picture. It's a, it's a, and then just one more picture like this. These are refugees and captives uh, from um, Syria who are reunited with their families. And this is the joy, the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy. So we just get that sense of the uh, wonderful hope that Isaiah is giving to us. I'll stop sharing now. I just ask you to, to turn to two New Testament passages before we go into depth into the chapter. The first is uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 34. This is, uh, I think, a hugely significant passage. There are two New Testament uh, references to the prophet Isaiah that mark out Isaiah as a, a unique book. Uh, it's obviously the one that speaks of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in great detail. And it clearly had a very special uh, purpose uh, in, in the purpose of God in, in convincing the world then and now that Jesus is the Messiah. But when we read Isaiah, we try to follow through. We, you know, we, we do find it difficult. And one of, the, one of the questions is, well, who is it speaking of? Whose is the voice uh, that the prophet is representing? Is it himself personally? Uh, often, of course, he's speaking for the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. But other times you think, well, is that? Isaiah himself, because in chapter 8, you remember, it says, I and the children whom thou hast given me are for signs and wonders. And Isaiah's just been told about the names of his children being very significant. So when he says, I and the children of thou hast given me, you think, well, that's obviously Isaiah. But actually, in the New Testament, it's quoted of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Acts chapter 8 asks. This is uh, grateful to our brother, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, for the question that he poses, and clearly it was hugely important because it's recorded for us. He's there in the chariot reading Isaiah 53. And verse 34, 
The eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Now, what's so important about that question is that it pinpoints the key issue that we have to bear in mind as we're reading Isaiah. Whose is the voice we're hearing? Does he speak of himself or is he speaking, as it were, as another man? And of course, the answer is he's speaking as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking the voice of the Lord uh, hundreds of years before the Lord was even born. And I think this is really, really important because I know, uh, as I just tried to show you, you know, that the setting, the historical setting of Isaiah is, is helpful in understanding the passages, understanding the imagery. But we can press it too far. We can, we can say to ourselves, well, everything Isaiah says must have a local fulfillment. And they think, well, really? A virgin shall conceive, must have a local fulfillment. Uh, and go through it, you know. Isaiah 53 must have a local fulfillment. Really? There, there was somebody else who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, a face for... Really, there was another local one? I think, well, we're pushing it too far. What the question that Ethiopian eunuch uh, asks is, of whom does he speak? Don't assume that Isaiah is speaking of himself in a local setting. Because the real answer is that Isaiah is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not as if passages of Isaiah have been reused by the apostles. As if they're giving, as in a modern, postmodern reading of literature, gave, give their own meaning to ancient words. Isaiah was always speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He always was when he spoke those words because he was under the power of God to speak what God wanted him to say. Whether they understood that is a different matter, but that's not our problem. Our blessing is that we know, because we've been told in the New Testament, what Isaiah was really saying. And the other passage I'd like to go to is Luke chapter 4. Because there is the tremendous drama of the synagogue in, in Nazareth where the Lord Jesus takes the book and he, um, he uh, opens the book. I want to think about that for a minute. Uh, so he comes to Nazareth where, uh, where he was brought up and, and he opened the book and you know it says he found the place where it was written. Uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at the scroll. I'm just going to go to this slide. Look, there's this great scroll of Isaiah. What an amazing thing that this was the scroll found intact in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which has been preserved for 2,000 years and more uh, and is on display in Jerusalem. It's a most amazing witness. And if you look at the text there, you'll see there are no chapters and there are no verses. Uh, chapters and verses be added in, in, in our in mo more modern era. Uh, chapters are about 800 years old, verses about 500 years old. Uh, there were not chapters and verses in the original text. I think, well, how did the Lord ever find the passage of the scripture that he was looking for? You know, the, the Isaiah scroll was a substantial scroll. Uh, he obviously was so familiar with that. 
There may be markings in the side that the, uh, the scribes put in, but they weren't part of the original text. In fact, what you find is, you see some of these, there's some gaps there in the text, uh, which are sort of like paragraph markings. And you think, well, okay, that was part of the original. The problem is that the, mar the paragraph markings in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the paragraph markings in uh, uh, the, uh, the Aleppo Codex are not always the same. In other words, even the paragraph markings are something that may not actually be part of the original. And I just want to quote to you from the Jewish Bible uh, Guide. This is the um, Jewish Publication Society on, on recognizing, you know, how would you break the chapters up if, if you thought you should have chapters? How would you say, oh, let's look at this section? How would you pick a group of Huh. There aren't even verses. How would you know which bit to read? That would make sense. That would be a unit of thought. And what the Jewish uh, Publication Society point out is there are no uh, formal markers uh, to indicate where a unit of thought begins and ends. It says, thus the Bible should be envisaged as a text punctuated only by word spaces with nothing to indicate sections, paragraphs, or even verses. Our first step when reading all biblical texts must be to subdivide into these kinds of units. What I'm saying is, the only way you're going to make sense is to keep reading and reading and reading. That is a really important point for us, because we're going to have to avoid, ignore chapters and verses and look to the text. And... What the Lord uh, did was to quote from Isaiah 61, uh, and then he stopped to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, we know the point that would be there. Why did the Lord stop there? Because the very next line was, was what? The very next line was, the day of vengeance, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that more. So the Lord stopped. And what we have got from that is the Lord has told us that the great puzzle of Isaiah, not just who is the voice, it's clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. But when can these things happen? You know, how can you how can you have a suffering servant and the kingdom? How does that go together? The Lord answers that by stopping after the acceptable year of the Lord. And the year of vengeance is something that is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And I can prove that because Isaiah 63 takes hold of those words in verse four. It's Isaiah 63 describes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to Jerusalem as a mighty warrior. And he says in verse four, for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed is come. He's come to redeem his people. He's come to redeem Israel. He's come to redeem Jerusalem. It is the day of vengeance. And the Lord Jesus, in stopping before those words, gave us the strongest indication that the way to understand Isaiah is to understand that the whole purpose of God is described in one, one uh, beautiful picture 
But there are two times over which it's going to be fulfilled, the suffering servant and then the kingdom. And there's a gap between them, which we wouldn't otherwise have understood. So when we come and narrow it down to Isaiah 40 to 48, you know, we're, our subject uh, chosen text is, is beginning of 42. We're going to have to understand how it sits in this uh, position. And what we've got uh, in Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, is a section of thought. How can I say that? Well, just read it. Just read it. Verses 1 to 11 of Isaiah 40 is a section of comfort. Comfort ye my people. Uh, God is coming. The glory of God is coming. Right. So and, and an amazing thing in verse 11, he's coming as a shepherd. He's, why a shepherd? Because he's going to gather the outcasts. He's going to get the lost sheep of the house of Israel and bring them to Jerusalem. But then look at verse 12. It says, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It's a, it's a different subject. It's a different section, let me, let me suggest. And. What it's saying is, it's saying that uh, that God uh, is unknown to people. Uh, they're asking, what's he like? So it's a, it's a different subject. So chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, sets the scene. We're still talking about Jerusalem being restored. We're still talking about the glory of God coming and the people being regathered. But then, uh, verse 12 onwards, is going to lay down the proof that the God of Israel is the one who can achieve these things. See, Sennacherib has belittled the God of Israel, hasn't he? He's described the God of Israel as just one of the gods of, of the city-states that he's defeated. The gods of those city-states didn't, didn't save them. How, how can your God, Hezekiah, save you? Don't put your trust in him. He's just one of them. Yeah, he may be a god, but... There are many of these gods, but my God is more, my gods are more powerful. And God is going to say to them, well, uh, what is God like? He's not like your gods. And in chapter 41 to 48, he sets out a challenge to the nations of the world. A challenge which goes right to the United Nations today. Yahweh is the only true God. He reveals the future and makes it happen. And Israel is his witness. Okay, so that's chapter 41 to 48. In, in those chapters, God is the creator. He's, he's the only true God. And he challenges the, the nations. Tell the future. Can you tell the future? Uh, of course, they can't. Chapter 41, verse 21, lays it out. He says, verse 21, produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be. Verse 23. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we will know that you are gods. You know, prove that you are gods by telling us the future. You can't. You can't. You don't know how. But the God of Israel does. And he will. And he makes it happen. And in that section, God is 
says in very uh, striking terms in chapter 43. He tells uh, verse 9 of chapter 43. Let all the nations be gathered together. Let the people be assembled. Who can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses. In other words, you know, come on, United Nations, bring your witnesses. Tell us what's going to happen. You don't even know what's going to happen to the coronavirus. You didn't even know it was going to happen. And you still don't know what's going to happen. You know, uh, Cambridge University is uh, being relied upon by the government to predict the course of the, uh, the current epidemic. And if you've followed this closely, you'll know that the unit in Cambridge, the Medical Research Council unit, uh, is doing something called now casting, right? Now casting, right? Not even just forecasting. They even have to have a guess at what's going on now. <laughs> Never mind being able to say what's going on tomorrow. But the God of Israel says in verse 10 to Israel, you are my witnesses. And so that's how the thought progresses. You are my witnesses. God makes the future happen. That's how he can say what's going to happen. So can you see that when we come down to uh, the next uh, section in, in uh, 42, that God is going to show us now how he is going to achieve that purpose. So if you look at uh, chapter 42, you'll see that, uh, and I know I'm going over time, so I'll carry on with this after in the second talk. But if you look, verse 1 to 4 says, Behold my servant. See, God says to the nations, Look, Israel is my witness. Uh, you can't tell the future. I'm going to take them into captivity. I'm going to bring them back. I'll even tell you the name of, of the king who's going to release them, Cyrus. So they're going to come back and be restored. But in all of that, God says, But take some time out. Behold, the word behold there, apparently, so we're told, functions as a stop. Stop. I'm breaking into this line of thought. As you go through, I want you to take a look at this person. This is it. Isaiah is standing on the stage speaking to an audience. And he's telling the audience about things. And there's a man standing on the edge of the platform. He hasn't said anything. He's just stood there. The spotlight's not on him, but you can tell he's there. The spotlight's on Isaiah. Isaiah's speaking, and he's, he, he's telling you. He's challenging the nations, and, and all the nations are, are thinking, well, we haven't got any witnesses. We can't tell the future. Maybe, maybe Isaiah's got a point here. But then Isaiah turns, and the spotlight shines upon the other man on the stage. Look at him. Behold, that's the man who's going to do everything that I have said is going to happen. Behold, my servant. So verses one to four describe that servant. Verses five to nine tell us that he is going to be a light to the Gentiles. He's going to open the eyes. Verse six says, for a light of the Gentiles. You see, Jerusalem is going to be 
a city set on a hill whose light shines so brightly that it illuminates the world. And the Gentiles want to come to that light. All nations going to flow up to Jerusalem. Here's the one. This is how it's going to happen. And then I want you to jump to verse 18. Who is blind but my servant? The servant comes back again. All of a sudden, the servant reappears. And you might think, oh, that can't be the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. I, I suggest you, there's a structure in this chapter which says that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what, what we've been told is that the one who is going to bring the light to the Gentiles is also the one who is considered by his own people as blind and deaf. The way to understand that section is to understand that it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ as he appears to the Jews. Not as he really was. Of course, he was dumb, wasn't he? Uh, he, 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 he was if he couldn't hear but when he was challenged by Pilate and by Herod. He didn't say anything. He was like a deaf man. No, it, it's as if he was blind and deaf. He, he, he couldn't be distracted uh, by what was going on. Uh, he was esteemed as that by his people. So I think that's what it is referring to. But then verse 13 to 17 they parallel verses 5 to 9. Verse 13 to 17 tell us uh, in verse 16, I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. So the blind, the lame, the, the sheep that have become lost are going to be brought back and given direction in life. And so verses 10 to 12 summarize for us the great hope, the great central hope of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the new song. Sing unto Yahweh a new song and his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedah doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto Yahweh and declare his praise in the land. That's what it's about. That's the goal. That's the aim. The first section, Yahweh's servant, is the one who will achieve that. He will. Uh, he will achieve that. But you notice how he achieves it. He doesn't achieve it uh, without first being that suffering servant. And we need to look at that in more detail as we uh, take a closer look at the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what we're trying to argue for, and that might be, be the long-winded way of uh, trying to demonstrate it is that when, when you look at this great scroll it is possible I'm not saying we can climb every peak you know 
I think, but at least we can see the peaks. We can see the range of mountains. We, we, can, we can see the scroll set out before us. And we can actually, if we look carefully at the text, follow the train of thought. It's not always linear. Sometimes it, it cycles back in this sort of way in Isaiah chapter 42. But it's not as if you know, Isaiah has dropped something in about Jesus every so often. Uh, and, and we could just pick it out uh, and ignore the context. What Isaiah 42 is showing us is that when God witnesses to the nations, he, has a, he witnesses about a purpose which he will accomplish through Israel, affecting a blessing upon all the world. And the one through whom he will achieve that is his servant, uh, who we now know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the one that Isaiah has been speaking of all along. He is a great shepherd of the sheep. He is going to recover the lost. And that will apply to the nation of Israel. You know, we've thought about this quite a lot. And we know we've got our own family link now to the inhabitants of the land there who are going to be taken into captivity when the Gokian invasion comes. There are going to be millions of refugees fleeing from Israel and they're going to be captives um, uh, as well. And they're going to be hostages and they, it's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. And they're going to, some of them be shipped out from Gaza. Some of them are going to find refugee camps in Jordan. And just like those pictures we saw of the, the Syrian refugees, there's going to be terrible sadness. Families are split up um, and so on. But the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come and he will deliver the redeemed. That means that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he will bring back uh, the outcasts of Israel uh, from all over the world. Uh, and, and they will return to Jerusalem. Of course, they will be a chastened people. They will have accepted that he is the one that they crucified, but he was the Messiah as Isaiah's prophecy had so clearly foretold. But for us, brothers and sisters, who, who now put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, Isaiah is such a, an amazing book for us because the great shepherd of the sheep has come to us to gather the outcasts of Israel and outcasts of the Gentiles. Isaiah 56 says, don't let don't let the stranger say, you know, I, I've got no hope. Don't let the stranger say, because he will build a house of prayer for all nations. And we find in the book of Isaiah this most glorious voice speaking about the hope of forgiveness of sins. Uh, most wonderful promises that though we are walking in darkness, Yet when we turn to the Lord, we can have our sins forgiven and we can come into the light. And that's God willing what we'll speak on this evening. But it is just such a wonderful uh, prophecy. And so my encouragement is to try to all, And obviously we're all learning as we go along to try and see how these, these scriptures are not to be cherry picked, but we are to follow that train of thought and see how these servant prophecies are embedded in the text and yet speak so wonderfully of the Lord Jesus Christ.
So I'll leave it there and come back, God willing, in the next talk. And we'll look in more detail at 42 and 49.